when there are no words, arts can give us a, a means to, to, to heal. Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quint. In this episode, they're joined by Melinda Bates, Global Consultant for Training Through Restorative Arts for International Ministries, to talk about restoration, mission, and the arts. Thank you again for joining us, Melinda. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, for those who do not know who you are, uh, where do you come from and what do you do with International Ministries? Okay. Well, I was born and raised in San Bernardino, California. I went to Del Rosa Elementary, Del Vallejo Junior High, and uh, Pacific High School and college at uh, University of Redlands for my first year and then uh, Cal Baptist University and then moved away to the Bay Area um, at American Baptist Seminary of the West in Berkeley. So that's my home. My home uh, neighborhood is Southern California. I met Pastor Sean at uh, Thousand Pines Baptist Camp. Uh, So we, uh, I was a camper, she was a counselor and we won't say when that was. Well, so I was, was only a freshman in college, so. She was a very, she was a very young counselor. And, I was very uh, young. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, became a pastor in 1988, I guess it was, and um, pastored in local churches in Oregon and Washington. And then in 2000, um, joined Gen- International Ministries as a global servant uh, working in Costa Rica. And my family and I were there for 12 plus years. And then I became a regional consultant working throughout Latin America. And now um, I'm called an international consultant for training using the restorative arts. So uh, I'm curious more. uh, So when were you, I don't know, were you raised in American Baptist kind of context or did you kind of find yourself in American Baptist life a little later? Like what, what's your connection with American Baptists? Yeah. So, um, I'm a first-generation Christian, uh, came to faith in a small American Baptist a church called um, Del Rosa Heights Baptist Church, no longer exists, um, was uh, invited to church with my um, uncle and aunt, and went to Sunday school and came to a relationship with Jesus there at the age of 10, and um, yeah, pretty much uh, shifted the way we did life in our family, my sisters and I came to faith, and then we uh, invited our parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. So, sort of shifted the whole dynamics of our of our extended family. So, um, has have always worked and uh, been a part of an American Baptist Church. That's where my faith formation was. Um, was then encouraged in leadership uh, through leaders in the church became kind of my place of formation and uh, was uh, encouraged to then go on to college and seminary after that and went to the American Baptist Seminary of the West in Berkeley. Very cool. Yeah. One of the things I, I'm very proud of as, as, Amer- as someone who wasn't raised in American Baptist uh, circles, but came from a, a more conservative kind of denomination uh, was the emphasis on at least in principle, the ordination of women and the inclusion of women into the into ministry and stuff like that. Do you recall maybe 
not necessarily your story of all of that, but kind of maybe when you felt a calling uh, to kind of pursue ministry, to pursue your gifts and all of that sort of stuff. Do you remember kind of a, that story or maybe it was a longer process for you? I don't know. What Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's, um, I sense that when I was called into faith uh, with Jesus and following in baptism, that we were all called into ministry at that point. It's, uh, mm. So I had a very strong sense that uh, what was shared with me was um, for me to be in, then share with others. Um, so my formation was a sense of call to ministry as a, as a baptized uh, member of a community. Um, so that was pretty strong in my faith formation. I think that when I was in college, I really, I really felt called to do some kind of like social work or some, some work with uh, community-based work, but also had a really keen interest in the scriptures and in um, how to be what I guess you would call a Christian social worker was my idea and um, sort of uh, the intersection of, of urban ministry and, and faith formation. Um, my family was not sort of your typical churchgoers, so um, so church was not a part of our culture. It wasn't, um, it didn't always fit, <laughs> and so I really had a sense that um, that this gospel message or this um, the good news needed to go outside of the walls of the church, and that that oftentimes the church had its own language that folks didn't understand. Um, it didn't always, it wasn't always a welcoming place um, for folks who didn't know the language, um, who didn't have the culture already. And so I had a real desire to sort of blow the walls away from the church and, um, and make those connections uh, with community because I had experienced both the wonder and the wounding of, um, of church life, <laughs> um, where there was some judgment of family members for lifestyle issues, um, but also sort of the place where, where my personhood was most affirmed as well. So this kind of both and. Um, so always felt like a sense that, that our call was to, to not create a club, but um, there, was, there was liberation that was found in, in knowing Jesus, and that was something that uh, should shift the way we do life in, in community. I think I went to, to seminary expecting to, um, wanting to have a firm foundation in theology and scriptures um, with the idea that I was going to go into some kind of social work um, ministry. And it was there, and I think I went off to seminary not necessarily believing that women should be pastors. So I grew up in a, a more conservative church. Well, my first church was not that conservative, but then when I was in high school and college, it was a bit more conservative. So I didn't have an understanding of a, of a call to be a pastor. Um, and it was there at, uh, at seminary in this, you know, through study, through affirmations of folks who saw my gifts and my calling that um, that call formed a bit more strongly. And then I could say that, that maybe God was calling me to pastoral ministry. Melinda and I met in at Thousand Pines at camp. Uh, she was, uh, it was junior high camp and I was a counselor. And then 
a few years later, I was, by that time I was in seminary and I was doing youth ministry at a church and we were at some kind of youth ministers conference or something, but Melinda and I ran into each other again at Thousand Pines, I think. And so we kept running into each other. And then, then one time I was visiting ABSW for something and I ran into Melinda in the hallway. And I was like, what are you doing here? And she goes, I go to school here. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> so, so it was like different points in our lives that we kept running into each other. And then, you know, after that, it was like once Melinda was in ministry and, and married and, and, um, and all of that. And then, and, and then at some point, we more intentionally stayed connected. <laughs> we quit just running into each other and we actually, you know, stayed connected and and I had the wonderful pleasure of in 2014 of of going to uh, Costa Rica with a group of students from Purdue and Melinda met us there and spent a few days with us uh, introducing us to her Costa Rica and all of her friends in Costa Rica and uh, the ministry that was going on there with the churches in, in that area so uh, that was that was really a great time. So you're uh, serving currently as a global consultant for, uh, I believe it was training through restorative arts. I believe it was yeah. for uh, international mm -hmm. ministry. So what is, I mean, big picture, you know, what is that? But also kind of day to day, what is that? You know, kind of what give us a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what that even means? So it was out of. Um, we raised our kids in Costa Rica, so we were working in ministry, uh, training pastors, and doing community work in Costa Rica, and then our kids grew up and went off to college, and um, so we decided to, to leave Costa Rica living there once my son uh, went off to college. And then I moved into a global role or uh, a regional role, which means that I lived in the States, but then traveled throughout Latin America doing capacity building and, and trainings. Um, originally with um, most of the emphasis on uh, human trafficking, prevention and, and care, aftercare, um, because that was a ministry that developed while I was in, in Costa Rica, sort of the context um, brought that. But then, um, uh, it was, it's been since I think 2000 and I'm guessing 2016 or so, or 17, that I shifted from a, a regional role that was just primarily focused in Latin America to a global role uh, because I had been developing more uh, trainings that were using the arts, trauma-informed arts uh, for caregivers and capacity builders for um, folks working both in the uh, anti-trafficking world, but also in displacement refugee work. And so I had been getting invited to offer trainings outside of Latin America. So then that moved into to more of global role so I could actually in, uh, receive those invitations without asking for permission every time to, to go beyond Latin America. So became a became a global consultant. And how that works is if you're thinking about like a weaving, there's the the woof and the weft, I think it is. So there are there are residential missionaries or residential global servants through international ministries who live in and are in the context of their, their communities in different parts of the world. And that's what we did when we were in Costa Rica. But the global consultants, um, we live in one place, but we, we work to connect around a ministry. 
so that we're called in and invited in to help train and build capacity with the folks who are living on the ground and the folks that they work with, um, but around certain, certain kind of skills. The, the restorative arts or expressive arts therapy using um, that for health and wholeness and resiliency is, um, is a way that I can go in and basically before COVID, because um, right now I'm grounded, but before COVID, I would go for maybe a, a week to 10 days and work in intensive trainings, capacity building with the um, organizations that we worked with. So international ministries and other organizations that I've been connecting with that are outside of international ministries to do trainings, workshops, um, experiential workshops. And particularly now it's around um, the expressive arts and using the arts as a way um, for healing for resiliency prior to that um, and I still do sometimes is uh, conflict transformation trainings so those are the kind of sort of intersections of work life that I do so so now that I'm, I'm not traveling uh, I keep in touch with folks by zoom um, by whatsapp and um, do coaching and and continuing sort of working alongside folks who are like in Cuba and then in other parts of the world um, who are doing their own workshops. And so then, then we consult with one another. That's a little bit about what it is. And I'm also studying to, to get my PhD in expressive arts therapy and social change. Does this, uh, does art making and creativity and restoration um, have a place? Can you give us more of an example of what that looks like? Like a, like a, a training or how, how did you come to really feel passionate about how the arts can be used in, in um, uh, healing? Well, there's a couple layers with that. So for me, as a child, it was, it was one of the ways that I could show up in the world. It was, um, it was a way to, of being, uh, a way of speaking and expressing myself uh, when words um, weren't there. So I... Uh, I was a pretty introverted child um, and quite observant. And um, I would find myself somewhat lost sometimes in drawing or um, um, looking around. And it was, it was sort of my way to find flow or to, to express myself in the unique ways that I could in a family system that was pretty extroverted and pretty chaotic. Um, so it was a grounding place for me to, to, to be involved in the arts. It was a place where I could sort of breathe and thrive um, and make sense of the world. So it was sort of my art. I used art as meaning making to, to try to make sense of the disparate pieces in my family system and in my place in the world. So, so art is a, has a personal place for me. And that, that sort of continued on. And then it intersected as a, as a worship designer as when I was um, a pastor of a local church. So um, I always saw art as a way that we, we make, our experiences in the world are through our senses, right? So through visual and through auditory and through taste and texture. And uh, many of our key um, rituals and liturgies are, are rather poetic, artistic, creative. So those creative connections were very tangible to me. And so if I would 
do a sermon, um, instead of getting lost in sort of my head and in the, the concepts, um, I would try to bring it down to, to objects and metaphor and, and using art as a way to connect uh, with people's real lives. So both, both personally and professionally. When I, um, I started then to do my own arts-based practice kind of at the end of Costa Rica time. So um, I'm realizing that we were in a transition, but also um, kind of a key thing, and I think, Sean, we've done this at, at, at Redlands as well, but I was, um, our church uh, was in the middle of a building project and they had a space for stained glass windows. And so um, this particular church in Santo Tomas de Heredia in, in Costa Rica had a sister church relationship with our church that we came from in Port Angeles. So a number of folks came from Costa Rica and they visited our congregation in Port Angeles and they saw stained glass windows and they fell in love with the stained glass windows there. And um, in Costa Rica, especially Baptist churches or evangelical churches didn't have a lot of art in their spaces and they were kind of had, had this conversation it's like why don't we have art why can't we you know what's what's the deal in Costa Rica and and there in that has a long history of you know their relationship with the Catholic Church and all of that so in their context they it wasn't very familiar but as they were doing their church building they said we really really love to have a stained glass window um, and we have some funds for it but we don't know who could do it we don't know anybody who who does it and um, yeah, folks in Costa Rica, was it was a small kind of niche. And so I mentioned that I had a little bit of experience with that. Um, and I was so out of my league um, because, you know, I've, I have the personality of like, well, yeah, I could figure it out. But I had taken classes when I was in seminary and I had given gifts, small gifts of stained glass to, um, to friends. But they said, oh, do you think you could help us? So, so I started this journey and I, we created, with the help of the church, we designed together two stained glass windows, six by seven feet, I think. And, uh, and then I just spent my Fridays uh, in, in, the, in a stained glass shop and created these windows and rem remembered again what it was like to create art, um, to take an idea and sort of a concept and bring it into sort of a tangible form. So I'll put those then and so yeah, I have some tangible evidence of my contribution to that place. But that reminded me again of like how life-giving creating is, how life-giving making is. Oh, it's a different language, it's a different way of expressing myself and so and how important it was for me to get into that flow and to just really connect both with God, myself, with others on a different level. And so once I was uh, back in the U.S. looking at ways to connect and, and to offer some help to my colleagues around the world, that intersection of art and healing and, and uh, re, um, resilience came together when I took some trainings um, called First Aid Arts. And it was um, based on the neurosciences, based on um, trauma and understanding trauma and how the arts have been used and have evidence base of, um, of bringing back uh, reconnection and integration in the brain and in the body and the nervous system. So then I had some scientific sort of, you know, backing 
to that. And, um, and there was a sort of a niche, but not a lot of global servants had with this idea of, of using the arts as a way to connect um, then the pieces back together and a tangible way of um, offering some coping skills and also just some healing through through the arts. So now it's kind of taken off the neurosciences and, and arts-based sort of knowing um, is, is much more common than it used to be. But that's kind of how it is. It was personal, professional, and then now this sort of intersection of all of those places. Um, and I think it works. You know, <laughs> I mean, I know it works for me and, and it's a place that uh, that I found with such division and such such deep brokenness um, in our in the social fabric of our of our world. And now as I'm back in the States more often, um, just seeing the, the real need for far finding a way to have conversations across difference to have conversations um, and and I think art can be a bridge, can be a container where, where those spaces can actually happen. Mm -hmm. The connection between this therapy and people who have been victims of human trafficking uh, or even domestic violence, is that one of the key areas where you're working or is it much more broad than that? So I, I think I work primarily with um, those who care for those who have experienced those kinds of traumas. So, so in terms of uh, building skills so that they can connect. So, so yeah, what happens in trauma is there's a disintegration of body, mind, spirit relationships. So there's this disconnection and um, arts are generative. And so arts are the way to bring some of those pieces back together. So um, it's a, it's kind of a, a call and response, right? So <laughs> when there are no words, arts can give us a, a means to, to, to heal some, some of the most horrid things that people have experienced in their body, in their thinking, in, in their spirit, um, and with their relationships are, are so hard to hold sometimes that um, we can't necessarily make sense with them with words. But, but if we can hum or if we can draw an image or if we can dance and have a gesture um it's a way to kind of have a back door into to healing instead of a frontal approach um and it it also um if we think about arts in in healing of trauma or arts and healing of those who have been victimized um or enslaved or forced to move there's a, not a lot of control Right, and so arts can can be a sort of a laboratory for for learning to have self agency again, to be able to to have a bit of control of one's life, to make choices, to you know, to have this sort of tangible way of mark making that says I I can do this and I see a, a result or. Or um, I can't tell you or explain to you what it feels like to have been victimized, but I can I can write a poem, or I can I can draw an image, or I can I can um, do something that that allows me to take what's inside and make it visible. So to to make what's invisible visible, and then have it witnessed, which is a really healing thing, right? It just makes a lot of sense with our bio biology and our nervous systems and how we connect and all of those kinds of so so it's it's embodied it's also relational right it's also sort of transcend you know uh 
it's it's within but it's also without and it, it helps us to connect sometimes with the beyond as well so so arts kind of allows us to hold all of that which i think is um well, I mean, I think the scriptures and I think Jesus was a master artist, right? So, so uh, we're in good company <laughs> uh, with those who, who engage in that way of knowing. Yeah. You, so I, I'm listening to this. I'm loving it. How, so how do uh, you balance? Because there seems to be with art, kind of how you're explaining, there seems to be kind of a universal component, but also a very particularistic or cultural component as well that, you know, there's differences, there's all those sorts of things. So in, in this sort of kind of arts and trauma and restoration, how, how do you balance both the universal element of it as it relates to anthropology, but also the particularistic element as it relates to anthropology and culture and all that? So like, could you speak a little bit yeah. into that kind of tension and dynamic? Yeah, so that, that's fascinating. So yes, um, individually, I mean, we're not, um, we're not a monolith, right? So, you know, cultures are, are made up of individuals who express in different ways, right? So, um, but, but biologically, so if we look at us biologically, our nervous systems respond to threat the same way, no matter what culture we're in, right? So, um, so biologically, we're very universal in that way. We, we, we make sense of the world through our senses, um, through our nervous system, right? So trauma impacts sort of universally our bodies in very similar ways, right? So we can, we can do that because we go into hypervigilance, right? Or, you know, um, sort of this heightened sense of energy when threat happens. So either fight or flight or freeze, right? We have a social engagement system, which is a part of our bodies. And that happens sort of universally. We've seen it happen you know, we've done workshops all over and we'll talk about sort of what our bodies do to respond to trauma and everyone's, yeah, that's what happens. The difference anthropologically is how we make sense of it and how we, how we articulate what happens in very culturally specific ways, right? So, so my culture may express itself more verbally or more sort of this rationally um, this way, but another might be, might be with more with drumming or with dance, right? So how we, how we discharge what happens to our bodies is very culturally different, right? So, so I can maybe do a workshop in the Philippines and everybody's loving karaoke or music, right? They're not so much into the, to the visual, the money to draw, right? But another part of the world maybe really into drawing, but don't try to get them to dance because they don't, that doesn't fit, right? So we, we, we offer ideas and then culturally, it's like, oh, okay, this is the way we have done it for the centuries, right? So how do we then in a workshop connect with what we've already been doing and now we just know why it makes sense? Does that make sense? So, so each of us responds to what happens in the world through our own um, artistic, and that's culturally somewhat specific, but even within cultures, people respond differently. And, and trauma is in, in and of itself, the event isn't what is traumatic, it's one's response to that event and what coping skills and, and social connections they have to be able to sort of hold that traumatic event. So that's why resiliency can actually be taught. It's not that some people are more resilient than others. It's just that how do we cultivate and nurture those kinds of things. Does that make sense? 
Oh, 100%. And it seems like that goes in, in terms of philosophy or kind of a, a way of being that goes really well with kind of how American Baptists generally have kind of tried to approach missions from a very, uh, for lack of a better word, I, I don't have a better word than this, culturally sensitive or culturally uh, having a, a great respect for other people's culture, trying to avoid imperialism and kind of all the other stuff that goes along with it while bringing, of course, the gospel and, and all those sorts of things. So it kind of seems like there is that tension, but it's, it's a healthy tension. It's a tension that kind of breeds a sort of curiosity, a sort of integration versus an exclusivity that pulls things apart. And it, it seems like, I don't know if you can speak to that maybe in terms of the mission field and kind of how it interrelates with persons like that, but it seems to me like that's something American Baptists have, I don't know if we've always done it well, uh, but it seems like that's kind of at least in principle where we are now. And that's not, that seems to kind of set us diff, set us out differently than how maybe other denominations or faith, faith, faith groups do missions. So it seems like yeah. culture, their culture is important and we don't want to just whitewash it or modernize it or whatever we want to do. It's We take this seriously as an integrative thing versus you can have your culture over here, but this is how we wor- truly worship Jesus or this is how we truly do uh, therapy or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of an integrative thing i don't know if that makes a lot of sense but yeah yeah so that's that's the hope (laughs) that's the desire that's our aspirational goal right we also recognize that we don't do it right you know so i mean american baptists have imperialized as well we've you know exported western christianity to all kinds of places so the arts allows us to ask the questions like what is this about right and so so um Yes, and <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it is um, aspirationally a way we um, are being in mission. Our posture uh, is to walk alongside, to discover together God's, you know, um, where God is and what God is doing and what God is inviting us into, right? So we, we come alongside, we watch where, where we see God at work uh, in the body of a, of, of a, you know, uh, of a church that, um, that has come into relationship with the God of the universe, who they have named Jesus, right? Um, and, who, um, and, and that looks very different according to different, different um, cultures. Um, so, so, yes, uh, American Baptists have always wanted to, to walk alongside and be partners um, with what the the people of God in each culture are are sensing God's um, initiative and how we respond to it, uh, and so we like like any mosaic offer our pieces to the puzzle, right? Um, or our pieces that that are there. We also have to be really. We also have to recognize when we when we messed up, when we when we haven't done what um, has been best, when we when we've imported you know, white supremacy culture, or um, we have to name that and say that we have recentered whiteness over and over and over again. And so did the, can the arts also help us to see when the gospel has been dressed in our own clothes the, that, has, that has benefited us? So constantly being self-critical as well of the whole mission, the mission enterprise, right? Um, how then, how then, as American Baptists, we hear the voices of our partners in the way we do ministry, in the way we organize ourselves for ministry? Um, how do we, how do we hear the wisdom 
of our African partners? How do we hear the wisdom of our Latin American partners? How do we hear the wisdom of our Asian partners when it comes to then doing ministry in the U.S. as a part of a U.S. organization? And that's where there's, you know, this back and forth. So if partnership is, is on both sides, um, we have a call to, to hear and to, to be shaped indifferently because, um, because the gospel comes back to us as this invitation for liberation um, from a different perspective. So yes, and um, there's so much more to learn <laughs> um, and, and to, to, to grow into. And I think the, the beauty of our relationship with international ministries is that our relationships with our partners speaks then to the churches and says, as, as American Baptist churches who are, our context is the U.S., um, how in my relationship with those who are outside of the U.S., how does that inform how I do ministry in the U.S. differently, counterculturally, um, you know, collectively versus individualistically? You know, how, how do we read the scriptures from somebody else's perspective? And then how does that make a difference? And then we are evangelized by our partners. And, and we get that relationship because we've, because we've gone. So that, I, you know, so that there's this, this yes and that we receive uh, if we're open to that we don't just go and give. It's, is, um, I think there's an invitation for the, the rest of the world to speak to, to, to where we are as, as a faith community here in the US. And, um, and that comes out of relationship. How does a, a local church then make the most of that? Because it'd be really easy as a local church, you know, we, we sit down and we figure out our mission offering and we send it off. Uh, we tell a few stories at certain times of the year and maybe have a mission speaker here or there. But what is the best way for a local church to make the most of being a, a part of a global church uh, and learning from our um, our partners and our brothers and sisters uh, in other countries? Well, I think it goes back around to the same question that you asked of particulars and universals, right? Because we, um, in the States, we, we have um, folks from all over the world who are living in, you know, as our neighbors, right? So um, if, if we're in relationship with our global community um, and then we're developing that relationship and we're learning, say from Costa Rica or from Mexico or from wherever it is that your church has relationships. So then you learn about the culture and you learn about what's important and how God is alive and at work. And that should inform the way you function with your neighbors that are close to you that aren't, you know, thousands of miles away. So for example, um, when we were in Costa Rica, we had our home church that was my, our home church in Oregon. And they came and they did. And our big thing was, you know, you don't come just to do a one-off and, and help people paint their buildings. Uh, if you want to come, then we, we recommend you that you're in like sister church relationships where you're doing exchanges and you invite them to come to your you know, community and help you do, you know, Spanish Bible study or something like that. Right. So, so we always talked about that. So we had a week and our, the folks from Oregon, they lived in people's houses in Costa Rica and they did, the church did a, a, a work project together and, but they were having meals, they were getting to know folks, they were, you know, telling and sharing stories, right? 
one of the guys said, you know, I just really love these folks. You know, I just um, have, feel so close and have received so much hospitality. And I really want to learn Spanish. He goes, the crazy thing is, though, is that we have migrant workers from, that speak Spanish who walk past my farm all the time. And I never once wanted to get to know them. So why is that? That they were very attractive in another country when they were when we were in their homes and we saw them as people to people. But when they came into our community, into our neighborhood, we didn't want anything to do with them. We saw them as a threat. Or we, we, didn't, we didn't know how we could even connect with them, right? So that's my question is if you're in relationship, then have that inform how you how you are with your neighbors close to you, who may be speaking Spanish or Somali or you know, whatever, find ways that you would do in another part of the world and, and put those into practice in the way you do work and life together. Yeah, so if you want to learn Spanish, then have Spanish classes. You know, if there are people close to you in, in, in Redlands that are in those communities, what do you learn from your relationships across the world that inform your relationships in your own neighborhood. That would be the one particular thing, you know, and that, that I can say that for me is because when I went off to Costa Rica before, I didn't, I didn't speak Spanish. We went and I learned as an adult to speak Spanish. Crazy thing, when I came back to the States for my U.S. assignment, I heard Spanish everywhere because I could understand it. And it wasn't because there was less Spanish before I left. It was just that I was paying attention. And so I could connect and I could relate. And I actually had then the heart language because I learned it because I needed to survive because <laughs> I was outside of my norm culture. But then when I came back into my norm culture, amazingly, there were so many Spanish speakers. So it wasn't, my ears woke up. <laughs> my heart was opened. And that's, I think, like, how do you, how do you amplify that? Because the voices are there. People are there. We just may not see them, or we may not hear them, or we may not be like courageous enough to develop relationships with them. But what makes it courageous when we're outside of the US? You know, we have, we have bridge builders, right? How do you become bridge builders? And that's why I see art is amazing, because you actually don't even need to talk. I mean, so you can do art together, right? And so you can develop relationships with beyond language by coloring together or by dancing, right? Or by, or by like singing, you know? So, so I think that that's like, that's why I see arts as a way, as, as sort of that, that container that holds us to allow us to connect and build those relationships. Because we get our focus outside of ourselves and then onto like an art. And so then all, we're all kind of focusing on the art and amazingly, we're building relationships at the same time. But we're not so afraid of those relationships because we're focused on something else together. And I think that's the magic of the, and that's, that's the magic of expressive arts therapy, right? Is that you decenter the issue, you do art together or do art and that allows you to inform the issue. So instead of focusing on the issue, you do something together and wow, you find wisdom to deal with the issue because you have resources that you found doing art together. I'm kind of a, an arty nerd in that way, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a way of, it's a way of being, it's a way of knowing. So, you know, it's not words, but it's, 
is by making. It's making meaning by making. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder, though, I keep thinking as you uh, are talking and thinking of our current situation, whether it is a uh, pandemic uh, and all of the life changes that have taken place over the last several months, uh, but also the polarization that continues to, to grow, you know, socially, politically, religiously, you know, in, in all these different ways. And what role can art play in our own personal healing and maybe being able to cope with what's going on? But beyond that, now, that was what I was thinking of before as you were talking. But now, as you're talking about this, then how does art enable us in the area of, of bringing people together and reconciliation and, and all of that? So I don't know if you have any thoughts. Well, that's one of the, one of the pieces to this, to the research that I'm doing now that I'm grounded. Right. So I'm doing stuff online, but a, a pivotal and transformational book for me has been my grandmother's hands by Res, Resma Menachem. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he's an African American somatics therapist. Um, so a, kind of a body based therapist. And he talks about racialized trauma and the healing and mending of our bodies um, to be able to heal and mend the cultural trauma that has that is that is sort of baked into U.S. culture. And his premise is that white bodies um, from the Middle Ages have held trauma from white trauma on white body trauma from being you know tortured and you know quartered and pulled and quartered right and that the folks who came to the u.s or came to this land were fleeing trauma fleeing persecution fleeing situations of deep distress and instead of actually metabolizing that or integrating that trauma white bodies pass that trauma on to other bodies to Native American bodies, they passed it instead of they bypassed their own healing and passed it on through genocide of, of our um, the native um, folks that were here and enslaved enslaved others. So instead of dealing with the trauma in the white body, that trauma has been passed on to other bodies. And we see the impact of it, right? We see the we see the outcome. So when, when black bodies, brown bodies, indigenous bodies are asking for acknowledgement for the horrors that they have held in their bodies and all of that and our reluctance to acknowledge the, the moral injury <laughs> that we hold as white bodies yeah. for 400 years, 500 years, right? That, that we haven't healed in our own bodies and passed on to others. If we can hold it and look at it and heal it in us to settle settlers' bodies without the fear, you know? So if we can, through the arts, somehow settle our bodies so that we don't pass on trauma to others through, through shootings, through economics, <laughs> through policies, right? If we can heal our own, then we stop the cycle of traumatic harm, right? So, so I, what we're doing, what I'm doing right now is that I'm facilitating a white body group 
that's doing an arts-based approach to a book study of Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. So My Grandmother's Hands is about his grandmother who was a sharecropper, um, whose hands were scarred from picking cotton. Um, and, and he talks about how we hold this trauma in our bodies and we have to work it through. And I believe that the arts helps us work it through. It's an embodied way, right, to, to, to heal. So I'm, I'm facilitating a white body group. My friend is facilitating a BIPOC group, a Black Indigenous People of Color group. And another friend is, is facilitating an Asian um, Pacific Islander group. Um, and we, we didn't have somebody who could facilitate a Latinx group. So we've only got three groups. Well, we're all doing our own work of healing through the body, through the, on art space instead of the head. Instead, we don't just talk about, we kind of work it through through creative means, like hearing the, reading this book and then like doing our own creative practice together, but accompanying. So white bodies accompany white bodies, black bodies accompany black bodies, Asian bodies accompany Asian bodies. And now in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have a combined art group where there's there's four people from the BIPOC group, four people from the Asian group, four people from the white body group. And we're gonna do art together. And um, hopefully have settled bodies to come in together and to create something imaginal that maybe, maybe we can create something with acknowledgement that you know, we all bring our different things and we all bring our, hold our own stuff, but can arts be a way to bridge that, that generational harm? that we all have our own different things and approaches, but so we'll see what happens. So, yeah. and I'm, I'm working under, under and with my co-facilitators. So is that it's designed with them in mind. So we're decentering whiteness. So I'm not the lead facilitator. I'm a co-facilitator, but they're, lead, they're the lead facilitators and I help to bridge Right. So so it's putting myself outside of the normative mm -hmm. um, and experimenting with what that looks like. And then we'll see what happens. And then out of that, you know, we'll see, can art be a way to to I mean, these are all people who I already know. I mean, they're, they're, they're my friends. So it comes out of relationship. And so they're, we're all doing it out of relationship. So we have some motivation, but we're also all sort of art, expressive arts people. So we have this commitment to the art. So if anything, art's gonna happen and we benefit from it. Um, hopefully that can be one way to sort of, instead of frontal you know, confrontation of an issue, we'll put that issue to the side, do art and see what we can learn together that helps us deal with, with the division, with the pain with the, you know, divisiveness coming together to do something. And I think there's something to it because that's where I, I mean, it was in art making with these friends that we forged a friendship that, you know, that we can actually talk about really hard things. Yeah. And, and, and I can, yeah, I can look at some of my own white body stuff because I know I'm loved, but I also know that there's impact of, of my presence and I have to look at it. I do it not because I feel guilty, but because I'm loved into a different way of, of being. I mean, it's not, the, it's not the magic pill or anything, but I think it's something we could like explore, like a laboratory, mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. know, 
And, and that's what I've seen where, where relationships are built. I mean, when we look at it over the, over the generations, you know, it's, those are the places where, where we've connected across difference is, you know, where we've offered peace um, through ritual, um, through, through image, through dance, through music. Those are the places where we've connected as humans across differing culture expressions. But getting to the table, that's, that's, that's getting harder and harder. <laughs> yeah, like making, making the meal together at the table. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I think I have, an, I have a gut feeling that it's, that it's one of the ways we can, we can make, make the shift. Yeah, I think we're going to have to definitely be um, innovative and creative and um, try things differently. Yeah, yeah. And to acknowledge that culturally, we are sort of bracing. And so it's in our bodies as a culture. We're bracing for violence. We're bracing for the conflagration, right? We want to be open. We want to have open hearts, but we're bracing. So like, how do we artfully explore what it feels like to brace and be open? Yeah. And then how do we create it? I mean, because I think that that's the only way is through creative initiatives that because we're, we're at standstills, we're like stuck sometimes. And I think arts and creativity is a way to get to, to it's an end around. It's, it's a way to yeah, if we could explore that way, I think it's one of the only ways that, that we can get people to listen to each other or mm-hmm. like feel it in their bodies differently than yeah. being argued at. Or if they're, if they're not going to get, it's not going to make it, you're not going to convince people from your arguments that we've seen that to be like pretty, pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've experienced it in your own bodies, right? I mean, you, you, so it's like, how can we remind people of what it is that has helped us connect? You know, like, remember, we have the resources within us. We've, we've experienced it ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. reminders, right? Like, what works? And then do what works. Thank you for listening to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. Our music was composed and written by Garrett Zambros. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to browse our website at www.fbcredlands.org, where you'll find our sermon series and links to our YouTube channel.